Mac Power Users, episode 313, iPad and Education with Fraser Spears. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, along with my pal, Katie Floyd. How are you doing today, Katie Floyd? I'm great, David. How are you? I am doing fantastic, and I'm so happy to have Fraser Spears back on the show. Welcome back to the show, Fraser. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. It's been some time. Uh, We had you, we first had you on in episode 93, you know, and here we are at 313. Yeah, that's a a big jump. Yeah, and Fraser is one of the uh, really, I think, pioneers in education in iOS. Uh, You were uh, developed one of the, if not the very first one-to-one iPad program uh, back in the day. And I, and I just want to hear how that's going. And I know that you've had a lot of development and frankly, Apple's changed a lot of things since the last time we talked about that, but you've yeah, also definitely. recently announced that, Hey, you're done with the Mac. You're just doing everything on your <laughs> iPad pro. And you've got this great new show on relay called canvas where you and Federico talk about how to get work done in your iPad. And so in addition to talking education, I just want to talk about getting work done on the iPad today. Is that okay? That's fine. I love how you don't even have to say a second name. It's just Federico. Uh, oh yeah, Federico. He's like he's like Madonna and yeah. um, you know, <laughs> Prince. I don't think he's Prince yet. At some point, Federico will be a symbol. There will be. He will go through a phase, and then he will be, have his Prince moment. Yeah. 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 What will his symbol be? I think it would be an iPad, like a, a sketch. Some of kind an of iPad. emoji that's unpronounceable. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think my symbol would be a lightsaber. If I had my choice, of course, it but would be. I, or, I don't think I'm to that level yet. So I'll have to work on that. Or a little Yoda head. Yeah, exactly. Big ears. I got the big ears. I could pull that off. I think mine is probably the emoji face that rolls its eyes. That's always, <laughs> that, that's always stuck at my, like, you know, in, in the emoji history part of the keyboard. Yeah. It's always like number one or number two. Yeah. So, so the yeah. iOS is judging you just a little bit. Yeah. I think if, if you looked at the history part of people's emoji keyboards, you could tell a lot about their personality. <laughs> you know what? Probably I bet true. you could. <laughs> well, I, I, I want to start the show uh, going back to education because I think that was one of my very favorite Mac Power Users episodes ever, uh, 93, where you talked about some things in there that, frankly, I steal from often. I was just talking to a family member about um about education and their 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 son and daughter and she was talking about well you know I, he's not very good at microsoft word but i said does he give presentations and she says what do you mean i said well if is he going to be an executive or is he going to be a secretary and i stole that completely from fraser uh he, <laughs> he made that comment on our show and it stuck with me so hard um uh are you still at the same school now yeah, I'm still there. I'm, I'm now the head of secondary there. I used to be head of uh, computing and IT, and I, I have since been promoted. Oh, congratulations. So I, do, I get to deal with things like the minibus and uh, minibus driver licensing and such exciting things as that, as well as uh, all now, kinds of other liaison things. Is that promotion a good thing or a bad thing? Are you stuck with all the administrative uh, nonsense now? or? Um, I'm enjoying it. Let's put it that way. I think it, it, it gives me a chance to shape the way the secondary department of the school works you know that's the kind of grades uh, i suppose you're living through whatever you know, less than that seven eight maybe um and i think what i'm looking for with that is i'm looking for ways to kind of uh make it a more repeatable process i mean education is never repeatable every year you know you're always dealing with different children therefore the situation is different but uh i, I think trying to you know deliver education at a high level of quality in a repeatable fashion at least it's 
insofar as we're doing our bit correctly every year is, is something that I think that's been challenging over the past few years because we've been through a big curriculum change in Scotland, the new exam system and everything like that. And at the same time, of course, doing the iPad program in school, those two things have kind of gone hand in hand. And uh, I think that's all starting to settle down now. The iPad program is very much, it's not in the background as such, but it's its not something that we're sitting around every day going, wow, we've got iPads, check, check it out. You know, yeah. it, it, it's something that everybody just assumes that we're, you have, you know. And that's really that the goal, that it turns into a tool, not a, a discussion point. Yeah, and I think there's a time for it to be the focus of your school and there's a time for it, for it to fade into the background. And I think if you don't make it the focus of your of your development program for a certain period of time after its introduction, you're not going to get that embedded use and that shared understanding of how the thing can be used well, what are the benefits, what are the drawbacks, where where is it not so appropriate to use it. Uh, that's got to be a big part of the focus of the life of your school for a certain part of time. But then eventually you got to get into a steady state of working where you're actually you know, doing the education part. Uh, rather than just sort of navel gazing about having iPads all the time. Yeah. And I think the administrative hat you're wearing now is going to add a lot of good detail to the second half of today's show where we talk about how you're getting your work done. But um, one thing that has changed on the education front since the last time we really talked about this in any detail is the rise of Chromebooks. And I know mm-hmm. over here in the U.S., for instance, the um, the Chromebooks have get, got a lot of momentum in schools. And I don't know, did you guys have you guys considered you know, have you have you gone back to the question of iPad versus Chromebooks or other types of PCs in the last few years? Uh, yeah, we certainly have. Yeah, uh, I think that the Chromebook phenomenon is not exclusively, but certainly the majority of Chromebooks in education are in the US. You know, the majority of Chromebooks worldwide sold are sold to the US, and, and then I think it's something like seventy five percent of all Chromebooks are sold in the US, and of that percentage about 60 percent of them go to schools and the rest go to consumers and about one percent go to businesses so the the chromebook phenomenon such as it is is very much a u.s education phenomenon rather than a a worldwide phenomenon as such now there are certainly schools in the uk using chromebooks and and i wouldn't deny that for a second we have certainly looked at them too um but i think the, the the great drive for chromebook in the u.s has largely been about um, delivering a computer, a, a cheap computer that you can sit kids doing standardized tests on, yeah, which of that, course is, is a huge agenda in the U.S. I talked to a, a, a listener of our show who wrote me recently who's using Chromebooks, and I wrote him back and I said, uh, I don't really understand. I understand there's a financial benefit of using Chromebooks because they're cheap. You know, it's, it's easy to get them in. And when you're buying hundreds of these things, uh, you know, saving a few bucks really adds up pretty quickly. I mean, they're basically just terminals to the Internet. Yeah, but the uh, and and you know the units are cheap. I mean they they're not expensive to buy. I think it's, they're inexpensive. Cheap is the wrong word. I know there's yeah, a very nice. They're Chromebook. essentially disposable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whereas an iPad is more expensive. But I always felt mm-hmm. like, and this is obviously preaching to the choir, but I've always felt like the iPad really enables creative thinking and just you know it's just a different kind of paradigm that seems to me more appropriate at this time and age. But um, I never, the guy never wrote me back because so I was asking, you know, what what is the other than the fact that you can get into them for less money? Mm-hmm. Uh, why would you choose one over an iPad? And and I never got a response. So somebody out there, if you're listening, let me know what you were thinking on that. Yeah, before well, we go, I think. Sorry, oh, go ahead, Fraser. No, finish your. I was thought. just going to say, from my from my point of view, we we certainly you asked me, uh, did we look at Chromebook in any detail? And and absolutely, we did. 
a couple of years ago, I, I went through a process over the course of one winter where I looked in detail at what would be the consequence if we abandoned our five-year, at that point, iPad program and went to Chromebook. And I looked at it from all different points of view, from, from a, a sysadmin point of view, a school administrator's point of view, a student's point of view. And, and what I found was that there are absolutely definite benefits to deploying Chromebook. But the thing about deploying Chromebook is that those benefits accrue to the school and, and to the systems administrator and not specifically to the student. Whereas with iPad, it, it's, more, it's less affordable for the school, certainly they're more expensive. Um, they are, in some respects, more difficult to deploy if, you, if you're used to a kind of Microsoft-orientated way of deploying devices. But the benefits that you get from iPad all accrue to the student. And if that's the business that we're in, then I think iPad, I came to the conclusion in my analysis that iPad was still the right thing to do because it was the best thing for the student. Whereas with my, you know, secondary teacher hat on, it would be much easier for me to deploy Chromebooks because they're cheaper, they're much less effort to admin, they're much less effort if somebody breaks one to swap them onto another one, all of those things. But those are benefits for me, they're not benefits for the student. And that was ultimately what kind of sunk the the nascent idea that we might switch to Chromebook was that it didn't help the students any. Right. I think that's an excellent point. Before we go too far down the rabbit hole of of talking about the successes and in problems and issues with your your one-to-one program and how that's worked. For people who haven't had the benefit of going back uh, and knowing your history and, and listening to that mm-hmm. past episode that we've done, uh, and I strongly suggest you do, we'll put a link to episode 93 in the, the show notes. C- can you give us just kind of a, a quick recap so people who don't know the history can understand a little bit about what we're talking about here? You know, we spoke a little bit at the beginning of the show is that the distinction is that your school um, has the... Dis- was the first one-to-one iPad program. So you've actually handed out iPads to each of your students uh, in your school. So give us just a, a quick snapshot of of what that looks like on your on your campus, so people can have an idea of the scope of what we're what you're dealing with. Sure. So we we started with iPad in 2010, which was of course the year iPad was released. So we we got some of the first ones that came off off the uh, off the boat in the UK. Um, in about May, April, May of 2010. And we deployed a one-to-one program in August of that year. And now that I say that time scale out loud, I can't believe we ever did it, but we did it. Um, so we've, we're not a very big school. We, we will next year be 120 students. And those are all the grades from K through 12 that you would uh, see in the US. And we are an independent school, which is important to know. So we have Uh, parents pay a fee to send their kids to our school and we decide how that money gets spent on teachers, buildings, facilities, equipment, computers, internet, whatever we want. Whatever we think is right is what we get to spend our money on. We don't get any money from the government in Scotland at all. Um, They they don't give grants uh, equivalent to what they would spend in the state or anything like that. We get zero pounds from them. And all the money that we spend on education, we have to raise from fees and donations, charitable donations to the school and sponsorship by uh, kind and interested individuals in the community to help students come to the school for less than the full fee. So on that basis, you know, that this is part of our budget decision as we decided to, to do this program back in 2010. What that looks like is uh, every student has an iPad that is named for them. The school leases the iPad, so, so their school equipment, they're not they're not purchased by the student and they're not purchased for the student. So the, the student doesn't uh, receive ownership of the device at any point. 
Um, and what we do is we, we change them over on a three-yearly basis. So we started with iPad 1. We're currently using uh, 32 gig fourth generation iPads. That was the second Retina iPad with the Lightning connector. And this summer, we're going to refresh to one of possibly two different iPads, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point later on. And with the program that's you're leasing through Apple, at some point you just turn in the set and then everybody gets the new ones. It's not that you, you're you cycling like some students have older ones and some students have newer ones. Yeah, no, we, we our model is um, to deploy the whole school at one time. And the reason we do that is because if you, many other schools have taken a model where they, they buy, you know, one year group and then the next year they buy another year group's worth and another year group. And, and you end up sort of taking a, a, a stepped approach to getting to one-to-one. One-to-one is, is the term that we use to describe a situation where there's one computer for one student in the school yeah. and they're named and deployed for that student. The problem with doing a stepped approach is you can never get off that treadmill because you've always just bought something. Right. So let's say you wanted to standardize on a new piece of hardware. When are you going to do that? Because every year you've got a set of one year old devices in school. You're going to throw them all away and get new ones for those kids again. And and you end up having multiple different generations of hardware in the school. Now, that's not as big a problem in practice as it might seem, because Apple's hardware support has been very good over basically over the entire lifetime of iPad. But you, you can imagine a situation where you may have some iPad 2s still in the school and they're starting to get really, really, really bad on iOS 9, even though it technically installs, uh, the performance is really poor on that device now. Same with iPad mini 1. So our, our plan, our, our model is to have one hardware unit for everybody in the school. Uh, and the reason for that for us is because because we're a small school, the uh, proportion of the school who are maybe in junior school or senior school that proportion changes every year. So it's some, you know, sometimes it's a 52, 48, sometimes it's 60, 40, whatever it is. Um, and to split the deployment over two different hardware models would make it very difficult for us to get the right device to the right pool at the right time. And I could also imagine that like when you make a software decision, you don't want to make a software decision that only applies to half of the iPads in the school. It's much easier to make one decision and have it work everywhere. Yeah, and then you get into situations where uh, although the software technically installs on certain devices, some features are not available. So a, a good example is in iTunes U. iTunes U has PDF markup tools, but only if you're on a fourth generation iPad or later. If you're yeah. on iPad 2, those tools don't exist. Well, well, the big point is you started this in 2010 and now we're in 2016. And yeah. you have so much experience under your belt. And uh, I want I want to hear about that and what worked and what didn't in just a minute. This episode of the Mac Power Users is sponsored by Market Circle, the makers of Billings Pro, a time tracking and invoicing app for the Mac, iPad, iPhone, and Apple Watch. It's great for freelancers and small businesses such as consultants, lawyers, designers, photographers, and everybody else that needs an easy way to keep track of time spent on client work and a fast way to produce professional-looking invoices. Billings Pro syncs all of your devices across all of your team members, so you can be tracking time for a project from your iPhone in a coffee shop while a team member tracks time on their Mac at the office. There's a handy widget that lets you manage your Billings Pro timers within the notification center. It also supports 3D Touch, making it quick and easy for you to start a new timer or jump to the most recent one. And you can easily add comments to your slips so you can remember all the details of the work you did during that time. After the work is done, Billings Pro makes it really quick and simple to invoice. Whether you're creating the invoice from your Mac, iPhone, or iPad, you just select the time slip, 
pick an invoice template, and send. You can also add expenses or bill by flat rate. Comments jotted down on your time slips can be added to the invoice so your client has a clear understanding of the work you did, which means you get paid faster with fewer questions. Billings Pro customers really like the invoice templates because they are clear and professional looking, and you can further customize those invoices to fit your own brand. Billings Pro also makes it easy to keep track of paid and overdue invoices without having to dig through invoices and dates. You can track which invoices are paid and how the client paid, whether in full installments or from an initial down payment. Also, you can view reports that show you just how much time you've billed in a month, how much time you've spent on each project, and even how much tax you've collected. There's a whole lot more you can do with this application. Billings Pro has the advantage of being designed by a group of people who love the Mac and iOS, and they've made these native apps to give you this beautiful experience on your Mac, iPad, and iPhone at the same time giving you that great cloud backbone so you can have your billings accessed anywhere. It's a great company with a great product. Learn more at marketcircle.com slash billingspro. Thank you, Billings Pro, for sponsoring the Mac Power Users. Okay, so Fraser, now that you've been at this for a few years, let's hear about the success and uh, failures that you've faced. Okay, well, uh, it's interesting to look back on it. I think what... what um, what the iPad program has mostly engendered in me is, is a frustration with the context that we work in, which is that um, in a particular school assessment, uh, so testing, exams, all of that kind of stuff, that a lot of the things that we see students doing with iPad just doesn't really get captured and measured properly, and it doesn't get weighted properly, in my opinion, in the assessment systems that we have. So a lot of exams are to do with recall, and, and memorization of facts and so on. And I I'm, I'm, want to be very clear that I'm not saying that that is a worthless skill because it is not. But what I am saying is that there are, there are other skills that we now have access to that we can teach and we can uh, assess with the kids. Yeah. But what we find with that kind of assessment is that it's very much more time costly to do it. So, for example, I did a project where um, I asked the kids to imagine they were building a walk-up kiosk for a museum, a touchscreen okay. kiosk, okay. and they had to pick a project, they had to break it down, do an information architecture diagram, and then implement it using the hyperlinks feature in Keynote. And some of them built really, yeah, really fantastic some things. Um, some really great things. Yeah. But what I know is that the assessment for that was was very much more costly in terms of my time than, than to just mark a quick test. Yeah. And the, the, the difficulty we have with those so-called higher-order skills is that assessing them is it doesn't scale up in an easy way to national systems. So that, that's been the thing that I've kind of learned, and that's kind of my biggest bugbear. It's not actually anything to do with technology. It's to do with what do we actually value in education? <laughs> and and the iPad, what the iPad has done is it's unlocked the door to so many other things we can now do in the classroom that are beyond what the exam system is designed to measure and assess. Yeah, I'd never uh, thought about that. But, you know, when you, you know, w when you step back, I mean, schools have been essentially the same for hundreds of years in a lot of ways. I mean, the way my father was assessed in 1940 is the same mm -hmm. way that a lot of people are being assessed today. Yep. I mean, there are, you know, some of the practical application of skills are measured by things like some, some component of coursework during the, an exam year. But the thing is that for most subjects, apart from, say, a subject like drama, for example, uh, most of the marks still come from the exam paper. So you might get 
a course that's worth 120 marks and 20 of them are for, are for coursework and 100 are for the exam paper. That, that's the, the breakdown in all the sciences, for example, in Scotland. Um, the course I teach, which is called Administration in IT, which is a kind of hands-on practical computer course, that's very interesting because it's 100% on the coursework. And I'm kind of I'm kind of enjoying that because that's the first foray into a kind of new world of assessment where the students will come in, they'll, they'll work under exam conditions in my classroom, but they'll work on a project, you know, a meaty project with multiple steps and lots and lots of things to work on. And then that all gets sent away and that is what gets marked and that's what becomes their grade. And I think that's a that seems like a way forward to me, but it, the, the problem is actually political. It's not it's not actually an educational problem as such. We know how to do it. We just don't have the the money to do it nationally, I don't suppose. And possibly also, you know, to a certain extent, the the political will to change everybody's mind about how we assess an education as well. Now, what about the, the existence of the iPad in terms of just changing the way students are learning and interacting with the, the program? Like you said earlier, you know, making a kiosk for a museum as an assignment. Well, that's something that wouldn't have been possible a few years ago. Um, now that you've been at this a few years, how how have you seen that kind of process change? Well, I, I think back to what I did when I when I was a young teacher, and I started I started working in two thousand and six, and I remember that year trying to make a video with kids in my class, and it literally took me uh, six to eight weeks of continuous effort in the class to get that finished because it was a firewire camcorder and it was one to one downloading time from the camcorder and all those kind of things. And uh, now I see as we, we throw off those projects just as a kind of time filler, like go away and make a movie, as if it was just like the most trivial thing you could possibly think of doing. And I think back, you know, 10, 11 years to just how incredibly difficult that was. Uh, and those those skills are, are now just so much more available that, that um, children are starting to use those. That's what I'm seeing with, with them, perhaps, it may be fair to say the more able students, perhaps, they're starting to uh, remix the applications for their own learning purposes. Maybe some other examples, you know, kids using Keynote to build um, animated and illustrated flashcards for learning. So you might think, well, you've got to get a flashcard app for that. Well, you don't. Kids will actually just build it themselves and they'll make it more personal and more meaningful by illustrating it with pictures that mean something to them about the content. I've building often, their own learning it, tools like that. Yeah, you know, I've often felt like applications like Keynote and Numbers really are almost application development platforms if somebody smart is spending some time with them. Uh, absolutely. No question about it. Uh, other examples, and this is one that my own daughter did, which kind of blew my mind, was she was practicing French. And one of the ways she practiced French was she set her um, iOS system language to French and started talking to French Siri. <laughs> <laughs> and that was how she was trying to test her pronunciation quality was could she get the French Siri to understand her? That's and interesting. You know, my daughter's taking French. I'm going to suggest that to her. I bet she would love that. That just kind of blew my mind. Just like, that is, that's like a whole other level that I never even thought of. And that's, you just see kids kind of throwing that stuff off right. um, very quickly. Now, just from a logistical standpoint, how are you able to do uh, examinations and evaluations on the iPad? Are they just, you know, more taking written tests and then submitting those to you as, as PDFs? Because... You know, I know one of the problems when I was taking, you know, exams in a in the law school environment is that 
they had, you know, special proprietary software that would, you know, lock down your system so that until the exam was concluded, you couldn't access another document or you couldn't go check your notes or do things like that. Or are, are there special software solutions for the, or app solutions for the iPad that will allow you to do that? Or are you, are, are you just, are, is that not even the mythology that you're using for, for giving exams? Well, it, it depends what level of security you're talking about. I think if um, if we're talking about you know a little test in class, then just active teacher supervision of the class is usually enough. Um, but when you're talking about you know finally external exams, there are actually um, published rules. Uh, if you look in my blog, there's actually a, I designed um, what's called an attack tree, which is a way that you could compromise a system. I designed an attack tree for breaking into iOS during an exam system. Um, and most of the guidelines that are used in Scotland now about iPads are actually based on that blog post. Um, so there are, what we do with final exams is we, we set up uh, clean room iPads, if you like, where we will um, erase them and reconfigure them for every exam. And we'll load on the exam paper and the students will be provided with a Bluetooth keyboard and this this particular iPad, not their iPad, but um, a specially prepared one. And then that iPad is connected to a certain uh, certain kind of network that can't reach the internet and Safari is turned off. And, and we, we apply all the most draconian controls that we can, restrictions, uh, network blocking, so that the device can basically only communicate with the printer. Because eventually what happens with even with the electronic exams is that the kids still have to print it out and post it off the same as everybody else who wrote it on paper at the end of the day. So go go figure, yeah. Um, so that's kind of how we do the, the final exams, the, the most, um, the high stakes exams, if you like. But in, in class, we'll either be doing sort of project-based coursework, like the kind of um, keynote kiosk thing that I was talking about, or we'll probably be using something like iTunes U where there's, uh, there's a PDF-based question paper and students can type on that and send their answers in that way. Right. How are the students typing? You said you were using Bluetooth keyboards. Um, are the students interested in Bluetooth keyboards? Are they typing on the glass? Gen- generally, what's going on with the with the kids and their iPads? In almost all cases, they're, they're typing on glass. Um, what I see happen every January is that somebody got a Bluetooth keyboard for the Christmas. And then they bring it in all January and then they never bring it in again. And <laughs> what, what that tells me is that the, a Bluetooth keyboard doesn't confer enough benefit to be worth carrying for the students. Um, instead, they just get on with, you know, getting good at the glass keyboard. Um, and quite honestly, we get kids writing, you know, long, long essays. Uh, I've had kids, you know, up to advanced higher computing, which is the kind of highest level you can do in school. Um, programming on using the glass keyboard on iOS. Uh, It's just not the issue that you think it is. Now that feels Uh, very generational to me because I think, I think people our age and and up uh, feel very strongly that, wow, in order to get real work done on my iPad, I I need that keyboard cover. I need an external Bluetooth keyboard. Um, But I I think you're seeing that the kids, I'm going to blame it on their small, I'm going to say it's their small hands that give them the the advantage of that, but, uh, yeah. but probably Those strong neck muscles. Yeah, yeah. That must be what it is. Those, those darn kids. I, you know, for years I, 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 I pled with my, my oldest to take a typing class in school. I mean, I said, you know, it, it's a silly class. You take it for one semester, but I took one when I was in seventh grade and it, I still use typing every day. And 
she never would do it. And I watch her type on her phone and her iPad. And she does this weird thing with like two or three fingers on each hand. But she types really fast. So I, I guess I just can't argue with it anymore. But now are your kids yeah. t- typing properly with, you know, the full, you know, f- five fingers or are they are they just kind of uh, how are they doing it? No, and it's something that I've, um, you know, this is really interesting that I reflect on it just while we're talking. Um, what I'm seeing now happen, and I'm going to do something about this over the next couple of years, is um, the kids who started school on plastic keyboards, right, on Macs and whatever, um, they came to iPad and they typed correctly on the iPad. But what I'm seeing with kids who are coming up on the iPad, and I think I made a mistake in this, but let me tell you why I think that. Um, their their typing is much slower and much sloppier. And I think what I've started to do over the past sort of 18 months is start to introduce, like, this is how you type on the iPad. Because, quite frankly, when they come to my class in the senior school, I honestly can't be bothered waiting for them to type that slowly. Um, so I think one of the mistakes I made was in this most recent deployment, we got, do you know, if I see a kickstand iPad case, the kind of one where the cover sits on the on the ground and, and the iPad yeah. kind of comes up in a K shape, um, so the, the iPad's very vertical. Um, we got cases like that, and I think that was a mistake. Because what that encourages is, you know, one finger typing, poking on a vertical surface, yeah. rather than putting the, and our, our case actually does go into both shapes, but the kids will tend tend to prop it up vertically rather than put it flat on the desk and type over it with two hands. Um, so what I'm I'm seeing is I feel like I need to get back to a bit more actual typing again, because for those kids who in the early part of the deployment had already had experience of desktop computers or laptops, they brought those skills over to the iPad. But what I'm seeing is that those skills are not sort of natively being created on the iPad, and we need to I think we need to go back to maybe teaching typing but teaching it for the iPad, right? So teaching the tricks, the keyboard tricks um, that you heard Federico and I talk about on a recent episode of Canvas. Yeah, and yeah. for everybody um, at home, that that's Canvas yeah. number five. Canvas, Canvas five, yeah. about typing, yeah. And, and I recommend listening to that with your iPad sitting in front of you. I listened to it in the car, and that was just making me mad. So I just <laughs> paused it, went home and rewound it and listened to it with my iPad, and I got yeah. some great tips, thanks. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see, you know, do the typing skills that we all learned as in, in grade school or in high school or wherever we learned them, you know, the, the fingers on the home keys, the ASDFJKL semicolon, um, Mm -hmm. which is always ingrained in my, my head. Now I agree with you, David, that was one of the most valuable courses that I ever took, but is that necessarily the the proper, and I'm using air quotes here, uh, way to type on an iPad now? Yeah. I've been using an iPad mini for the last several years. Um, as the show is recording, my my iPad Air nine or my no my iPad Pro nine point seven inch. I've got to get all the names straight now. Uh, is in route to me. It will be here by the time this this air this show publishes. But that's a very di- you know even going from the mini to the nine point seven to the to the twelve inch iPad. You know those are very different typing experiences. I know for your kids are on the um, your pupils are on the the nine point seven inch iPad. Correct. Yeah, that's right. So it's so, so, it's still a compromised keyboard, but it's closer to to a. Yeah, yes, it is, side. and of course, if you go to the if you go to the big iPad Pro, there's really no compromise there at all. And for me, that's one of the big advantages of the full size, or the twelve point seven inch iPad Pro. Sorry, twelve point nine. Yeah, um, is is just that additional keyboard space that that's a big benefit. 
So, so having been at this for six years, what are some of the biggest problems or challenges you faced um, having this one-to-one iPad program? Well, it, in truth, it has mostly been quite easy. Um, and in fact, it gets easier all the time. When I, when I look back to the kind of deployment techniques, and, and this is kind of where I, I spend a lot of my time in the summers is in, in the deployment part rather than the teaching part. Um, that was the things we were doing back in 2010. I can't believe they ever worked. You know, that was we had an iMac in every classroom. Sync, all the iPads in those classrooms were syncing to iTunes, one copy of iTunes. Yeah, um, I remember you were we, talking about how you had to buy apps and it was just completely crazy. Oh, it, it yeah. was crazy. And then so the, with the volume purchase program came in, mobile device management servers got affordable for schools. So we've been on, we've had an MDM for nearly three, uh, three years now. Uh, that's made life a whole lot easier. Our next enrollment will be using the device enrollment program. So that means that, you know, devices will automatically configure themselves straight out of the box. I mean, it, it's, it's potentially realistic that I might not unwrap all of my iPads before the first day of school now. And I can just open them up, fire them onto the Wi-Fi, and they will download all the apps they need, set themselves up, and you know, that is now possible. So I'm, I'm looking. Can at, I buy that know, for my family? <laughs> I, I wish you could. Uh, that is, it would be an amazing thing. But um, I, I believe, well, uh, no, I better not say that. But <laughs> there's something that means you can't do that. Um, we'll put that in the show notes, yeah. which is code for not talking about it. Um, but yeah, I think that the point is that. Um, the deployment techniques have gotten easier over the years, but iOS has gotten incredibly more powerful and therefore a little bit more complex over that time. Uh, the biggest problems I had were called iOS 7 and iOS 8, quite frankly. Yeah, um, iOS 7 those, probably those particularly. Yeah. Really rough years. Yeah. And th- that was the kind of darkest trough when I wrote the whole thing about should we switch to Chromebook. Um, and my, my interest in Chromebook waxes and wanes with Apple software quality. Yeah. But iOS 9 is a completely different story. iOS 9 is, is a return to form. Uh, we're very, very happy with what it's, it's been like for the past year. We're, we're doing really well with iOS 9. And then 9.3 got some education-specific features. Are you going to be using those? Oh, my goodness. Yes, I am. Um, not all of them. Uh, shared iPad in particular doesn't really apply to us because we have one per student. Yeah. Uh, and I'm quite frankly relieved about that for the first yeah. year. Um, I would not like to be the first, the, the launch customer for a shared iPad. It looks um, precarious to start with, I think. Um, but I think it's something that is really for future deployments rather than to be retrofitted onto existing deployments. I think it's really something to plan and test for into into future deployments really and truly. But there's many, many kind of uh, configuration options in iOS 9.3 that are going to be very helpful for schools. Um, things to do with uh, setting the home screen layout, for example, you can enforce that now. Yeah. Uh, and that's going to be really helpful for five and six-year-olds. Um, I was talking to the teacher in that class the other day and she was saying, oh, I can't believe that's finally here because see the amount of time I spend looking for apps on these kids' iPads and the way that they sort of ruin their configurations just by dragging apps around. Um, things like that, you know, these are, these are things we've wanted for a very long time and they're all finally coming in 9.3 uh, and, and it's very welcome. What about the hardware reliability? Now that you've got six years in this, um, how generally have the iPads held up? Oh, I think overall it's been stellar. I think we we saw um, with iPad 1, we saw very few screen breaks, but we saw more kind of, uh, if you know what I mean, when I say the bathtub yeah. model of hardware failure, you know, <laughs> early high rates of early failure and then high rates of wearing out failure. 
we saw that. We saw a number of dead on arrival iPads and then switches and buttons started to wear out by the end of three years. With the current iPads, we are mostly seeing uh, screen breakage as the number one problem. Um, and the other problem is uh, people breaking off headphone jacks in the socket. We're, we seem to be plagued but with that for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know if it's perhaps the shape of the the connector or, or the lack of support around the pin or something like that on those iPads. Um, but we, we get a lot of that. Um, but I also think that the, the sort of iPad 2 style case, you know, with the tapered edges, is a lot less forgiving when you drop it than the earlier iPad was. Yeah. And I think even in the iPad Air and later is as well. Um, so screen breaks have kind of been an issue, not not an unmanageable issue. You're talking, we're talking about maybe 4% over the course of three years. So it's, it's not a big deal. Our hardware reliability has actually been very, very good over, over the course. And we're starting to see a few wearing out now that we're two and a half years into this deployment. So overall, you're happy with the one-to-one program in the iPad? Very much, yeah. I, I think it's the kind of thing that um, is kind of like buying a puppy. It's for life, not just for Christmas. You know, um, once you're one-to-one, it's incredibly difficult to go back from that. I'm not saying it's never been done. I, I know of deployments where they were one-to-one and they're not anymore because the people who liked it left. Um, and that's something that I'm interested in about and concerned about, that these deployments seem to rely on champions or superheroes for too long. You know, and the the thing I want for my school is to, for this program to survive me if I was ever to leave the school. I want it to be that this, the rest of the staff would want to keep going with this kind of program. And they might have to hire somebody with a particular skill set to, to technically keep it running. But they, from an educational point of view, they would want to keep it running. And that's the key thing. And I certainly hope that we're we're getting there for that, if yep. not quite there yet have you on just i'm curious hearing about some of your, your your common issues have you done any of your own in-house repairs at all or have the kids learned at all how to how to fix common problems um or are you just sending those out to to have them repaired um for, for hardware we just take them to the genius bar it's not worth our time to to try and do any of that work ourselves we have a genius bar 25 minutes up the road and i just take it there and i make it their problem um, what is has become an issue over this last deployment, though, is the cost of iPad repairs. Uh, and those are going up. I don't know if you've looked at the price recently, but when we started with iPad 1, we were paying about £125 for what Apple calls the out-of-warranty service charge, which is if your warranty is done, you bring it to the Genius Bar and they fix it for you, they charge you the set amount of money. For our current iPads, that's £249. And for the iPad Pro, it's now £479 to get an out-of-warranty repair done on your iPad Pro. So the cost of that is going up and up and up and up all the time. Uh, and as a result, we're thinking about for the first time, instead of self-insuring the, the losses in these iPads, starting to build in uh, some insurance cost in there as well. Uh, be- not because our um, damage rates are going up, but just because the cost of any one incident is, is going through the roof. I don't know why that is, but it is. Well, I think you just need to rethink your shop class and then start teaching these kids how to repair them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, start casting big rubber cases for them. Yeah. I mean, that's something go. we haven't done is we haven't gone for, you know, the, the sort of Otterbox style case. You know, we haven't uh, we haven't made them into military spec machines. And I think that's important too, because that takes away some of the benefit of having a mobile device if you put it yeah. in such a heavy case. It's tough. But then when you have little kids carrying them around, boy... It'd be tempting. I'm well, sure. you know what's really interesting for for the younger kids? What we, they never break their iPad. Oh, really? No, no five year old or six year old has ever broken an iPad in our school. It's always the teenagers. Um, 
And the reason is because they take them home, they put them in their bag, their bags go around the place. Whereas yeah. the little kids, you know, they're trained to be very careful with them. But we have a case for the younger kids that has a carry handle on it, like a suitcase. And see the difference between that and them having to get their little arms around a full-size iPad? That that has made all the difference. Uh, putting a handle in your case is, is a really good way to stop younger ah. kids breaking iPads. So you also, just, they don't drop them as far because they're shorter, right? Yeah. <laughs> you just got to give the teenagers the, the, the little carry case that you give the, the little kids and problem solved. Well, if I could get them to stop walking around the school while using their iPad, that would that would be my first protocol. Or, or, or make ha, have a case of shame. You know, when you break one, then you have to get a big foam case that's pink. Well, you know, uh, I'm thinking about maybe having a little, a few iPad minis kicking about. So if you break your iPad, you got to live on a mini for a week until I get it fixed. Yeah. <laughs> no well, offense to many owners anywhere. Yeah. Well, Fraser, you are not only uh, spreading the word with this one-to-one program, but you are also a, a leader yourself because you are—you've always been a power user on iOS, and you've really brought it to new levels the last couple of years. We, we've talked about, you know, first name only Federico, but mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, you're even ahead of him. I, I know, like for instance, we're doing this podcast. You're recording on—you're uh, using your iPad to make this podcast, right? I am. Yes. I'm, I think I'm you're the first me. guest in our history that's done that. So there we uh, go. I want to talk about how you get all this work done with your iPad uh, right after this. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by longtime friend of the show, Smile, makers of great software, including PDF Pen and PDF Pen Pro. Now, PDF Pen and PDF Pen Pro have a long time been my go to PDF tools for the Mac and iOS, and they can be yours, too. In fact, PDF Pen is the Swiss Army knife for PDFs. Uh, It has so many tools that it's hard to believe that it can barely fit in your pocket, but it can because they also have a version for iOS as well. So let's talk a little bit about what these great tools can do. Well, PDF Pen can do all kinds of great things like uh, be your standard default PDF editor for the Mac. It can do wonderful things like signing and filling out forms. It can even fix PDFs, so it can fix typos. It can OCR your documents, which Mac Power users know is so critically important so you can be able to search inside your documents. Um, It can even redact sensitive information. So you can go through and you can search for information like, I know it's tax time, social security numbers, redact the last couple of digits. Um, You can add and correct text. You can mark up and highlight PDFs. You can draw and make notes and comments. Uh, You can fill out forms and share them with other people. You can even take a PDF document and export it into Word. So you can do all the editing you want. It is just magical. And then when you upgrade to PDF Pen Pro, which is PDF Pen's big brother, you can do all of that and more, including you can export your documents into Excel, into PowerPoint, and into the new PDF archive format. Uh, You can also do fun things like create your own PDF forms. Uh, You can archive the contents of a website. It is just amazing how powerful this application is. And the developers with Smile are so in tune to important things like accessibility, PDF Pen Pro can even add and edit tooltips to your form fields so that they are voiceover accessible, and things like that are so important. Uh, PDF Pen Pro has become my default PDF viewer and editor on the Mac, and it can be yours too. You know, if you download PDF Pen Pro, in fact, you can go get a free trial right now on their website over at smilesoftware.com MPU, and you can make it your default PDF viewer and editor on your Mac just by getting info on any PDF on your Mac Uh, from the file get info field. And you can tell uh, the finder to open all of your future PDFs in PDF Pen Pro. And I think you'll be a lot happier from there forward. Again, you can go get more information at smilesoftware.com slash MPU. Uh, PDF Pen Pro 
uh, costs $124.95, and it gets all the features of PDF Pen and PDF Pen Pro. So it's the one that you want. If you want to check out PDF Pen, it's available too for $74.95. PDF Pen Pro requires Yosemite or later, and it works great on El Capitan. So go check it out, smilesoftware.com slash MPU. And thanks to Smile for their continued support of the show. Fraser, what happened to your Mac? Well, uh, quite frankly, I sold it. I sold it on to somebody who could, could give it a better life than I was giving it. Wow. So you don't have a Mac at all? Um, to be absolutely precise, there are Macs in my life, but there's not one that you would say was Fraser Spears' Mac. Yeah, I have a Mac Mini Plex server at home, which is just serving our media. And at school, I have a Mac Pro, which used to be our, our Mac OS X server machine back when we ran Macs. And it's now our Apple configurator workstation for deploying iPads. And it's kind of set up with my Apple ID and I can use it if I need to for whatever. But it's not its not really like my computer as such. I don't consider it mine. It's just a, a machine in school that I have a login on that I can use if I need to. But, but it's in a corner and it's, it's not, you know, it doesn't go around with me. It's not a laptop, for example. It's just, it's just sitting there. I have Macs in the way that I have printers, basically. It's funny because my first exposure to you was as a customer because I bought some of your Mac software that you developed in Xcode. And no, that's a when I heard ago. you saying you got rid of your Mac, I'm thinking, well, he's a developer. How on earth are you doing that? Well, uh, the answer is I got rid of the apps before I got rid of the Mac. Yeah. yeah. Um, as my role at school just grew and grew, uh, it became clear that running a Mac software business or an iOS software business and you know giving the proper commitment to education that I wanted to do wasn't going to be sustainable over the long term. And also, quite honestly, David, I, I was very concerned that, you know, as as iOS grew up, what I was seeing from my own point of view as a customer was that I wanted software solutions where I had a, a Mac app, an iPhone app, and an iPad app, and I wanted to pay like $3 for the whole thing. Yeah. And I thought, that's not a business I want to be in. Yeah. And, you <laughs> know, much credit to my colleagues and friends who are still trying to make a living out of doing that. But I just... I feel like I kind of saw the inevitable coming and I decided just to get out while the going was good on a lot of that stuff. Um, so I, I sold or gave away those apps to different uh, d- developer friends um, and many of them still live on. Uh, Viewfinder for the Mac, which is still a great app and I kind of miss it on iOS. Um, but it was a Flickr search tool for finding images that you could use for Creative Commons. Flickr export for iPhoto and Aperture, those were... Uh, plugins that I worked on for many years, those those are still available. Um, and and various apps like that. And, but I, I hadn't been developing for quite a long time. My school had kind of taken over and grown in importance, basically since the iPad program started, really, to be honest with you. Um, so those that line of work ended um, much before I made the transition off of the Mac. Um, and it was that period in between the, the transition off of like traditional Mac productivity to iOS is actually in some ways more interesting because the developer stuff, I didn't find a solution for it. I just cut it off. Yeah. Whereas the other stuff I've had to keep going, but the story about how iOS kind of undertook many of those tasks is is perhaps the more interesting of the two stories. Yeah. And, and really that that's probably not something you just woke up one day and decided you do. It was probably a gradual thing where, uh, and I'm, I'm kind of on the road, but not really nearly, I don't even think I'm heading where you're at, but, but I am finding that, Every day I kind of find it fun to see how much of my work I can really get done on this iPad Pro when I don't need a Mac. And that's probably where you started. Well, I I think I I probably tried it three or four times, you know, since 2010. I mean, when we first got the iPad, I certainly tried it back then. Um, But 
the thing that unlocked it for me was cloud storage. And for me, that it was when I went all in on Google Drive at school, because we are Google Apps for education in school. And as a part of that, you basically get unlimited Google Drive storage in your school account, which is a phenomenal benefit. And, you know, I'm incredibly grateful to Google for offering that. I think it's it's transformed the quality of service we can give to our students at school for, for basically no money, which is phenomenal. Um, once I went all in, firstly on Dropbox and then migrated to Google Drive for the space, um, it seems to me that that is what changes the game for for um, for Mac users. When you're not carrying around a, a state on your Mac laptop hard drive and it's in the cloud, then you can reach into that cloud storage from your Mac, from your iPad, from your phone, whatever, and get something done and get access to something. And I think that's that was the thing that unlocked it for me was just going all in in cloud storage. Now, I'm going to be a little naive here because we've talked quite a bit about using Dropbox with with iOS. And certainly I've I've used Google Drive before, but I've never really used the Google, the storage component of of Google Google Drive. How integrated is that with iOS? I know we've we've lambasted Google before for not keeping uh, support up with some of their their iOS apps, but as a storage solution, how is that working? Um, it's working fine. Uh, the Google, the way that you do this in iOS is there's two ways. One is just to use the open in feature to send a document into another app. And that was kind of the way that you would upload stuff to Google Drive for years. You take one file and you'd open it in Google Drive and it would, as a result of that, it would upload it to the cloud. But now you have this document provider extension, which is a, a new enhancement and that came in iOS 8 and has really matured with iOS 9. Uh, and that lets you reach into your Google Drive from almost any app that supports this and pull a file out and do something with it in, in the app that you're in or indeed uh, upload a file to Google Drive from whatever app you're in through a little extension that pops up inside the app rather than having to switch apps and, and go to Google Drive and do that. Dropbox supports a similar thing and so does OneDrive um, but the the document provider extension support in iOS 8 and later 9 has really helped that in large part too. And it's weird because it's not always the same. Uh, different apps and different cloud services have like the ability to edit a file in place versus making it local copy. And to me, that's always like a game changer trying to figure out like for my PDF workflows, I, I find one set of clouds and apps works better. And for like uh, Microsoft Word for me, uh, Dropbox is really good because it allows you to work on the app in place. And you must have to spend a lot of time kind of putting those pieces together as you're putting this stuff together for the school. A, a little bit. I, I would say that um, Google Drive is actually better than Dropbox in this respect because it supports all the operations that a document provider can do, whereas um, Dropbox only supports import and export, whereas Google Drive supports edit in place. So it, it that's a complex little bit. And I think Apple didn't do a great job of the API there because too much of the way that the system's programmed shows through to the user. It's not transparent enough. Uh, and I think that's um, that's something that could be worked on in later versions of iOS. Um, and certainly companies like Dropbox could work on their system a little bit to make it support all the all the modes. And this is why you sometimes see when you, when you pull up a document provider, um, it says something like Dropbox doesn't support opening files. Which seems like a bizarre thing to say, but it doesn't support you know capital O open in the parlance of iOS uh, system programming. You know, one question we don't ask very often, and you know, why is it that people are trying to get rid of their Macs? You know, why is it that 
people even care? You know, why, why should we want the option or why should we go through these hoops? And there are some definite downsides to what you've done uh, that we're going to talk about. Um, and to me, I think it's something to do with delight. It's like, it's delightful to uh, have a thing that you can touch and use the pencil with. And I mean, there's just so many things that are kind of more fun in terms of computing to work on, even though they may be a little bit slower on occasion. Um, but you know, do you have any insight on that? Yeah. I, I think there, there's a certain class of, of task that is just much more naturally done on a tablet form factor. Uh, and as a teacher, I spend a lot of time working with PDF documents and other kinds of documents and just holding it the way you hold paper is it somehow just makes sense. You know, um, I, I was just, before I came on the show, that I was just marking a PDF document for, for one of my students in PDF Expert on the iPad with my pencil. And to all intents and purposes, it was just exactly the same thing as writing with a red pen on paper. But it was, uh, it's together, it's compact, it's erasable, it's, you know, it's just all the benefits of computer with all the great things that are great about paper as well. If that, yeah. if that makes sense. And I've talked um, about this on prior shows, but my, um, my, cause I like you, I'm a lawyer, so I read many contracts. I do a lot of transactional law and I've now got on my iPad pro where I get my PDF viewer on one side with a pencil. And then one third of the screen is dragon anywhere where I can dictate extended comments. Um, and, I am so much more productive on the iPad with that than I was on my old Mac workflows. It's not even close. It's huge. And and I think the other thing about one of the other things about particularly the iPad pro, but this is also true of smaller iPads is that when you get into um, iOS nine multitasking, you're, you're genuinely working with two hands at once, right? I I play the iPad pro like a piano um, and I can work in, in the right hand app with my right hand and the left hand app with my left hand. And I, I can play both parts of it. And if you think about what you do in the Mac, right, you only get a kind of part of this with the Mac where you've got your mouse or your trackpad in one hand and you've got your modifier keys on the other hand. In which case you're playing, it's more like an accordion, right? There, there's a keyboard yeah. on one side, but there's there's buttons on the other side and you're sort of modifying what one hand is doing by using the other hand. Whereas with the iPad uh, Pro in particular, you're really, you're touching both sides at once. And I, I make a lot of presentations. I give a lot of presentations. I use them in school. And one of my favorite things is, is uh, Safari on the right-hand side and Keynote on the left. And I'm just grabbing things from Safari, images, uh, selecting parts of text, pasting with my left hand, positioning with my left hand, doing fairly gross movements, hitting a button, pasting, moving, and doing fine stuff with my right hand. And I think th- those kind of environments are so are so powerful because they're, they're so focused on the task that you want to achieve. Whereas with with the iPad or with the Mac, it's kind of like, uh, you know, bring this window to the front, click, select here, switch over to this app, do this, you know, and and I know you can have two up on the Mac now as well. That's, of, of course, a thing too. But you're still only really doing that work with one hand. Whereas on, on the iPad, I really feel like it's a much more physical interaction with the device. And you're really kind of getting your hands into the work that you're doing. And, and I just find the speed that I can achieve with that to be to be really quite substantial, and it's not true everywhere. There's certain uh, rough corners of iOS where yeah. things do slow down very quickly. The, let's not kid on that iOS is perfect because it's certainly not, and nobody knows that more than I do. Yeah, uh, I have a laundry list as long as my arm of things that I want changed in iOS, but there are distinct and real benefits to this kind of way of working, and and I I realize them every day in school. 
Well, that's a perfect segue, because right after this, I want to talk about what is working and what isn't working. Maybe we'll take a look at your arm just a little bit. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace, the simplest way for anyone to create a beautiful landing page, website, or online store. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code MPU at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. There was a time when anybody could cobble together some HTML and make their own website and generally get by. But that's not the case anymore. Websites need to be beautiful, and they need to look good on all the different devices, ranging from the size of an iPhone to a 27-inch iMac. Squarespace makes this easy and simple for you. They have tools and templates that allow you to capture every detail of what drives you and make it look great on the web. You can build a site that looks professionally designed regardless of skill level and there's no coding required. Years ago, as my Mac Sparky website started to get popular, I decided I wanted to up my game and I looked into hiring people to build a new website and I looked at Squarespace and it was really just a no-brainer for me. Squarespace allows me, at a very affordable price, to control my own website, make changes that I want to make, and, frankly, it looked better. Using Squarespace, you'll easily be able to make your website look and feel exactly how you want. And with their state-of-the-art technology, you can ensure security and stability. They're trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. The site templates are stunning and beautiful, but it's really just a jumping-off point. You can really make your website your own using Squarespace. When you add things to that, like 24-7 support with live chat and email and their commerce platform and the ability to create your own cover page, you can just see how easily it is to start using Squarespace and solve all your website needs. We've heard from listeners that are running all types of businesses off their Squarespace sites, ranging from law firms to crafting businesses. If you've got an interesting one, let us know. We'd love to take a look at it. The big point, however, is you don't need a pro to set up a beautiful website with Squarespace. To get started with a trial with no credit card required, go over to squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code MPU, that's for Mac Power users, to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for our show. We thank Squarespace for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. So, so now that you've ditched the Mac, what is it that you're enjoying the most about this iPad-only computing environment? Well, I, I think in, in one part is simplicity, right? That I'm I'm not living across two different computing paradigms at the same time. You know, desktop metaphor on the Mac, mobile metaphor on the phone, on the phone that I carry with me, and the iPad that I carry with me. I'm just all in on iOS. So in that sense, there's there's less to remember, right? Because I, I'm dealing with the same apps on all my computing platforms. I don't have to think, well, how do you do this in Keynote on the Mac? Yeah. How do you do this in Keynote on iOS? Can you do the same things? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not thinking about, oh, I can only do this on the Mac, or oh, I can only do that on the iPad. It's either I can do it or I'm not doing it, right? So I, I don't think, for example, anymore about... Um, you know, like the, the move animation inside of a slide on Keynote, right? Because that doesn't exist on Keynote on iOS. So I, d- I don't think about it anymore. I might want it, but I, I don't have it. So who cares, right? Yeah, it's, it's, that's what I use all the time. Anymore, I, that would know? be a problem for me. But the, um, yeah, interestingly, that does exist in PowerPoint and iOS. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> the, the, um, but, you know, I think part of that is a really the idea of um, getting used to the new paradigm. I, I feel like... Mm-hmm. 
sometimes when I try and work on my iPad, I come into a problem where I know exactly how I would solve it on the Mac very quickly. Yes. And I'm not sure exactly how to do it on the iPad. So I need to take the time to learn how to do it. And maybe the first time it will take a little bit longer. And it's certainly not second nature to me yet. A good example of this, I was get, I was working on a presentation recently and I wanted to remove the background from an image and drop it into a keynote slide. Mm-hmm. And I can do that on my Mac so fast. And it took me a little bit longer to kind of work out the steps. But now I know next time I don't have to think of the steps. Now I just have to execute them. And, and after I do that a few times, I may be just as fast at doing that. But I do think there's a certain amount of resistance from people. Uh, of learning new skills on a new device because they know the old skills on the old device. And I I think that plays a role. Well, and most people aren't working only in iOS all day long. I mean, by the nature of the work and many of the things that you do, I mean, you spend a lot of time in, even before you decided to make the complete transition over into iOS, uh, you were living and working in iOS pretty much all day long for your day job. Yeah, that's true. And I certainly, the benefit I have had, I think, is that I my learning grew with iOS. And I think in some ways it's almost harder to become an iOS user now than it was in 2010 because, you know, when we started with the iPad, we had pages and keynote and numbers and they were really simple applications compared to what they are now. And and many of, of the apps on iOS and iOS itself was all much, much simpler than it is today. Like today, iOS now can can manage the workload of, of a serious computer user. A, a professional, a creative person who makes podcasts, who creates presentations, who teaches, who interacts with the world and other organizations, all of that can now be done in iOS. And, and I know because I tried it, that, that wasn't true six years ago. But what I've learned is I've learned every little new feature that came along um, at the speed at which it came along. Whereas transitioning now, um, it I can I see people getting just a bit overwhelmed by it sometimes. Like there's so much to learn. Where are all these? Where are all the new settings? And yeah. and in some ways, um, I think iOS has not kept all of the simplicity that it had in the early days of iOS in the face of the additional complexity that has been added to the system, so it can support things like Microsoft Office, for example. Yeah, but, um, but see, I and, feel and like that's, that's why Canvas is an important show to have. Yeah, and I think it's an important step, though. I, I I do think that Apple in the last year, particularly, has said. Oh, maybe we are going to give the iPad some more power tools and make it, you know, something that people can get more, you know, more complex work done on it. Frankly, I'm I'm on that team. I hope they they continue down that path. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think in in some ways, and you can't really fault Apple for doing this, but the story of the you know twenty, what was that? Maybe twenty eleven, twenty twelve, twenty thirteen, fourteen. That period was all about getting the iPhone into China and things like that. Yeah, and making sure that iPhone didn't lose ground to Android or whatever, um, and who can fault them for doing that? Right, you you look at just yeah. the scale of iPhone compared to anything else; it's just natural and right that the iPad had to take a back seat. But now it looks like the iPhone is pretty secure, and there's of course there's new strategies happening for the iPhone as well. But iPad's making a big, big comeback, and I, I think in many ways that the criticism I have of Apple in those years was that they stopped telling people what to think about the iPad. And yeah. they started. Um, they started saying, "Here's a new iPad. Um, we can't wait to see what you do with it." Right? They always ended the, the, the iPad yeah. segment of any show was just, "We can't wait to see what you do with the iPad Air 2. Um, 
and then they would show you like somebody filming a, a kabuki theater thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like because well, everybody do does that, that right? Yeah, every, every, everybody is using a digital theodolite on the Great Wall of China, right? Yeah. Um, but what's interesting now, if you look at the the um, nine point seven inch iPad Pro marketing, it's all about here's a guy sitting down doing PowerPoint. Here's yeah. a guy sitting down doing Excel. Here's a guy sitting down doing Zmail. Here's somebody, uh, you know, choosing colors for a design. Here's somebody, um, you know, having a having a video conference with somebody else, right? And and it's not that those are none of that's new to computing, but it's just telling people again what to think about the iPad in a very down to earth way, in a way that, quite frankly, the first iPad ad, if you remember the one that was all about, um, uh. What is iPad? It's iPad is fast. iPad is um, beautiful. iPad has a thousand apps or whatever. And yeah. it, ends, it ended with this amazing phrase that said, and you already know how to use it. Yeah. With reference to the iPhone. Um, and that was such an amazing advert to me. And I, I actually put it in my presentations and I said, you know, you, we're going to talk about iPad today. I'm going to show you this first because it encapsulates in 30 seconds so much of what I want to tell you about what the iPad is really about and what it's really for. And there were years where Apple never ran an advert like that. Yeah, and I think they're getting back to that now, and I hope that that's something that's going to really help uh, help people to th- how to think about the iPad because people need to be told what to think. Yeah, that's you know, something. That's something I, I really believe. Yeah, it's something that surprised me. Uh, David knows, and I've talked about it on the show a bit, but you know, I went through a period of time last summer where my Mac was out of commission for a good block of time. It, I kept having to send it back to for for service, and ultimately ended up getting swapped out. But I was in the middle of taking a, a class for school and could not be without a Mac for that period of time. And even though I was on an iPad mini and that was somewhat inconvenient because of screen size, I was really pleasantly surprised at how capable the iPad was when push came to shove and I really needed to use it, um, you know, for schoolwork. And basically those those things was, you know, using it for Omni Outline or using it for Microsoft Word, using it for, you know, PDF uh, reading and rendering and then especially in the the time that I spent with the you know 12.9 inch iPad Pro those were the types of tasks where that iPad truly excelled and it it was you know for many people going into school now it's going to be fine as a laptop replacement for the types of things I I mean clearly I'm preaching to the choir here because it is it is the laptop that your students are using in school um but it's going to be fine for those types of things in fact today I was sitting in a class and and looked to my left and there was a guy who's using a, a an iPad. I don't know which version it was. I couldn't tell, but it had a dot connector. So that narrows it. It was a one, two, or three. Um, I'm hoping it was a two or three at least. And mm-hmm. um, uh, an an Apple Bluetooth keyboard and origami case. And I thought, wow, yeah, mm-hmm. good for him. Yeah, I think in some ways it's about you've got to get to a point where you can trust that the iPad will undertake for the extreme circumstances as well as just the day-to-day stuff, right? Um, you know, typing up text notes in a class, that's a controlled situation and you know that you can make that work. One of the things that's unlocked a lot of this for me and other teachers in school is, quite frankly, it's Office for iOS, right? Yeah. And the thing is, it's not that... Um, it's not that Keynote and Pages weren't good enough for what we wanted to do with them. Our students are still using those and I use them both every day. But the thing is, other people will send you Office files. Yeah. Uh, the government will send me Office files. The exam board will send me Office files. And I have to be able to render those uh, as close to 
100% fidelity as Office ever gets, right? I often joke that Office isn't even compatible with itself, never mind anything else. Yeah. <laughs> but having Word and having Excel and having PowerPoint on an iOS device with the actual Microsoft-produced rendering engines for those file formats has been a massive game-changer as well. Not because I, I use them for their own sake, but because they get me out of a tight spot with other people who assume that the world still runs on Windows. And even though it doesn't and hasn't for years and will never again, uh, people still think that way and they still have, there's still frankly so much stuff just in those file formats. You've got to have them. And Katie, my industry, you know, it's just huge. And there there are some limitations with iOS office, like word styles. Oh, you can, there's certain things you can't do with styles that you can do on the Mac version. But just as we're recording this at 1 PM, I have already logged two hours today in office on my iPad pro because I would rather work in word on my iPad than on my Mac, which is something I never thought I would have said a year or two ago. Yeah. I mean, the, the course I teach also does have, it has some requirements where you need, they, they, they're so kind of um, window centric that they put in the, in the course assessment things like, Oh, you, you have to, uh, you have to rotate by 90 degrees, the text in the table headers, right? And that's a feature that only works on Word on Windows, right? So you're just like, well, why is that in there? Because you can't do it in any other platform. But um, for me, we had a situation just in school recently where the exam board sent us a Word template, which was a kind of scanning frame, if you like, because they're going to scan the exam papers. And the kids had to put their writing, their essays into this Word template. And I was like, what are we going to do with this? Because, you know, it's going to be a nightmare. And then I thought, well, hang on a minute. Let's just test this on Word and iOS. Worked perfectly you know, completely, you know, absolutely perfectly. Um, broke over multiple pages, got the footers right, got the frame right, got everything right. I was like, mm, that's, a, that's a watershed, right? That we did something completely on iOS that was designed to not actually work on iOS. It was just, here's a Word document, make it happen. And we made it happen in iOS with Word. Uh, and it was, it was really great to see, to be honest. Yeah, really good. So, so what's not working now that you've got, you've ditched your Mac? I mean, where are you running into trouble? Um, I, I actually uh, added one to this outline. Yeah. Let me bring it up. So maybe you've got a solution for me. I feel like I always bang my head against the wall when I try and use my iPad to do what I call batch processing. Like yeah, if I want to attach a file to an email, I, I was trying to send a couple contracts to a client and there was three files. I had to go mm-hmm. through, you know, you know, the attach file methodology and tap it three or four times to get, you know, down to the appropriate folder um, three or four times. You can't just attach three files as one email attachment, you know, that yeah, bulk operations is, is something that iOS has traditionally been pretty weak at. You know, you, you've traditionally look, been looking at opening one file in another app or picking one file from a file picker um, and going at, doing that across apps has always been annoying and is still annoying. And that is, one of those places I, I referred to earlier where you quickly run into the sand and that just bogs down into a slow process rather than you know, dragging select three and just drag and drop them into your email program. That stuff is still slow. A lot of people look at that and they say, well, that, that means iOS will never be good enough for this and this, but never is a very long time in computing. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I, there's no there's no inherent reason, right? And, and this is the thing that I, I that frustrates me that people don't get about iOS is that Apple made it the way it is, and Apple can also change it, right? 
you know, and you've seen this happen with things like multitasking. I mean, Apple made it a, a one app at a time operating system and then they changed it, right? And you could quite easily see Apple making, you know, um, document pickers have a done button where you, yeah. you can select multiple and then hit done and it does the operation, you know. Yeah. There's no inherent reason. And I think in the early days, people looked at iPad and they said, well, that's a slow computer, so it will never do this or this or this. And I mean, look how fast the iPad is now, right? There's no hardware reason at all why this thing cannot do everything a Mac can do. It's yeah. just a matter of programming and a matter of maturity, right? Yeah. Because this thing is faster than, than the entry-level Mac laptops now. It has the same amount of storage, it has the same amount of RAM, it has a higher resolution screen, it's got 3G radios, which none of the Mac laptops even today have. It's got a capable AV adapter. You can plug it into projectors, HDMI TVs, uh, I've plugged this microphone right into my iPad today. Keyboards work. Bluetooth keyboards work. It's got a Bluetooth stylus interface. It's got so much of this stuff. There's no hardware reason for this limitation. It's just a software limitation, and we know that software limitations can change. So I, I think yeah, I, I it's, agree. A, it's a matter of time. It's a matter of filing bugs. It's a matter of uh, communicating feedback to Apple that you want this stuff done. Um, and I've certainly done that myself. Um, but there's no reason why that can't change. And I, but I have it, to believe that there's a lot of executives at Apple carrying these things around, running into these exact same problems. The, the, I mean, making multiple attachments to an email isn't something that, you know, you have to be a high-level programmer to bump into. Um, no, these these are everyday problems, and, and I'm certain that people have, have encountered them. Uh, the question always for me with Apple in recent years has been, I mean, even Craig Federici stood up on stage one time and said, like, oh, you can do this on your iPad or do this on your Mac if you want to get work done. And I was like, well, what did you just say? Come on. Yeah. Um, but yeah. In the, I think the tide is turning inside Apple to the point where there are now people who are looking at iPad as being a potential Mac replacement as well. And you notice that in, in their the recent iPad Pro event, they talked about iPad as a PC replacement. Yes, that was a big never, thing. Never as a Mac replacement, right? Uh, <laughs> they, or, they don't talk about it replacing your laptop. They talk about it replacing an old PC. Yeah, I just so, saw a picture of Tim Cook in his office with this whole, you know, FBI thing going on. And looking at his office, he's got a 27-inch iMac, and he had an iPad Pro with a keyboard cover. And I don't believe that was like, Apple PR setting those things up. I'm pretty sure those are the computers he's using. And mm -hmm. just like when everybody used to say keynote so good because Steve Jobs uses it, part of me has to believe, well, you know, if Tim Cook is using the iPad as much as he says he's using the iPad, I'm sure that they get plenty of feedback from the boss man on that as well. I'm sure they do. The, um, I, I do think that that is, so, so I don't see myself going the Fraser route and just like dumping my Mac. I, I, there's a lot of stuff I do on my Mac that I'm, I'm not right. You know, I don't really feel any burning desire. I love my big iMac, but what I would like is when this laptop ages out is maybe not replace it and just use an iPad for the, the local stuff. Uh, but, but there are some software and hardware limitations that I'm experiencing now that, that prevent it. Like I just went and gave a presentation in Chicago, and I just wanted to reliably have a clicker for my keynote presentation. And I understand mm -hmm. that I could do it with my phone, and there's different ways you could do it remotely, but a clicker is really the best way for me to give a presentation. I don't have to look at anything. I can keep in my hand, behind my back, whatever. Yep. And um, and 
over the years, I've had some solutions work on the iPad and some not. And it just feels to me like just this is relatively low hanging fruit, but it's stuff that they just haven't got to yet. I don't feel like it's stuff they're never going to really cover. I I have used um, my iPhone for many years as my keynote remote. Um, which was quite frankly a lot easier before I went to an iPhone 6 Plus. <laughs> wow. <laughs> a little unwieldy for that task, um, yeah. but it works. It works. Um, I am very curious about this new uh, powered Bluetooth. Uh, sorry, not Bluetooth. Um, this powered USB, USB adapter. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I believe that if it's powered, it can actually power a bl- wired Bluetooth keyboard as well. And if you think about it, most of these bl- these clickers that you get are um they basically emulate a keyboard right they have the little usb thing that you stick mm-hmm. inside your computer yeah and basically what they're doing is they're sending the keystrokes for space and forward and back and and, and the one the keystrokes that control the presentation fraser so, my head is spinning yes. i can't believe you just thought of that i uh I, as soon as we hang up here i'm going to report back on that you're gonna go plug it in aren't you <laughs> yeah um, so I'm curious about that. I haven't actually got that, that um, powered blue, uh, USB adapter yet, but I think that's a possible solution to that. I believe somebody has also told me that there are certain Bluetooth clickers that do work with iOS if you pair them now um, with, with recent versions of Keynote as well. So there are, there are increasingly ways around these things too. I'm so excited. I'm plugging it in while we're talking. Yeah. If you find that that works, you let me know. And I'm going to go order one right now, too. Let's do a little, a little dream sequence music now, and then we'll come back in a minute. And- <laughs> no, we can keep talking. There's plenty to cover. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 like a, my white whale, another white whale I have on the the iPad is Mail Share Sheet. And I, I may just, oh, have yes, to, yes, yes. I just have to leave Apple Mail if they don't figure that out by iOS 10. It feels to me like, come on, guys. Yeah. Um, but but yeah. what are some of the things that are not working for you? Um. I wouldn't say there were things that are not working. Um, well, that's not true. Uh, the thing that is just sort of fundamentally very difficult for me is um, downloading. Uh, this is extremely obscure, which tells you how much low fruit uh, I'm not dealing with. Um, if I have to download certificates from a mobile device management server, I, Safari always wants to install them as profiles on my iPad. It won't let me just save them to a file. So I think in some ways, uploading and downloading files from the web, this was actually episode one of Canvas. We talked about uploading and downloading files from the web. And that's a lot better than it's ever been. But Safari could use a download manager. I think that's something that um, over time that could get improved. Um, and, And iOS's special casing of certain kinds of files, I think I would like a way not to do that. Um, so I was trying to set up a new Amazon EC2 server for our school and I couldn't do it because I couldn't download um, one of the files I needed from the Amazon setup page. So, it, But it's obscure kind of systems admin, things like that. Not so much um, in my day-to-day work, I'm not really running into big problems anymore. And David, you might want to try what I did, which was um, I started when I had my iPad Air 2 before the Pro came out and I created a document and I said, every every time I have to go back to a Mac to get something actually achieved, I'm going to write it down in a note in this document. And yeah. I did that. And within the first two days, I put like 15 things into that document. But what I noticed was the rate of growth of that document tailed off dramatically after the first few days. And I thought, well, if I can chip away at four or five or six of these major areas, this is probably possible. And over time, software came out and um, I made changes to the way I did things. For example, you know, like um, getting a Plex server at home rather than um, relying on, you know, different uh, like iTunes on the desktop, for example. 
So moving all that into Plex, that was a, a change that I made. Uh, subscribing to Netflix rather than you know buying things from iTunes, stuff like that. Uh, and making those kind of changes, just identifying what are exactly the problems. And not only just what is the problem, like what was the task, but also what did iOS lack that meant that I had to go back to the Mac? And when the reason for doing that is because as apps get updated, as new apps come out, I can identify, well, this app didn't have blah, 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 blah. But here's a new app that does exactly that. So now that problem is not a problem anymore if I switch between those two apps. Do you see what I mean? That, yeah. That's the kind of, the okay, kind of I have real-time uh, feedback here, guys. Okay. Uh, so I have a Kensington uh, clicker. I've written about the website, my favorite mouse clicker. Interesting. So I plugged in the new USB 3.0 hub to the iPad Pro. Um, there's four buttons on the Kensington. There's a laser, which obviously still works. Mm-hmm. There's a forward and backward button, neither of which work, but there's a screen dark button that does turn the screen dark on the iPad. And if I press it again, it, it undarkens it. So mm-hmm. it may be just a question of finding the right remote because it, it's it's receiving something through the wireless remote. It's, it's just not receiving yeah. the forward and backward slide button. So it's almost like the mapping might be off then. It, exactly. So I wonder it may if be assuming PowerPoint and Windows or something like that. Yeah, I wonder yeah. if there's some kind of preference that you can change the, the keyboard yeah. mapping for it forward and back. You guys remember dip switches? I wish this had some dip switches on it, but it doesn't. Um, open uh, up, bust it open, see what's going on. Yeah, but you know, maybe there is a remote out there that can work through this. I don't know. It'll be an interesting experiment. But, and now um, I'm yeah, seeing I think it the... just needs to send the right keystrokes for Keynote, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Maybe software side. If I can just get Keynote to to change, but you know, I'm not sure I can do that on Keynote on iOS doesn't really give me a whole lot of control. No. I'm sorry, Katie, I interrupted you. You were going to say? No, I just. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, I want to talk about one of the things when we said we were going to have you on the show, everybody is saying, hey, um, what about the 9.7 versus 12.9 or 9.7 versus 9.7, which uh, we want to talk about uh, how we decide between these various iPads right after this. Our next sponsor for this episode is our good friends over at the Omni Group. And I want to talk a little bit today about Omni Outliner. If you're like me and you're one of those left brain people and your mind just thinks and works in the world of outline, then you're going to want to check out Omni Outliner. And Omni Outliner is the premier tool for Mac and iOS for outlining. It can store and collect all kinds of information about just about anything. You can get started using their built-in themes, and they've got a couple of different ones that you want to outline for a classroom, if you want to outline for a novel, if you've got a special project in mind. And Omni Outliner is feature-rich and flexible. You can use it for any number of tasks, from creating simple lists to outlining a speech to taking class notes or even writing a novel. You can start with a simple outline and then quickly add structure from there to beef up your outlines and go deeper. You can expand and collapse whatever you information you need so it's not so overwhelming and you can just dig in and focus on a very specific portion of your outline. And everything is accessible through keyboard shortcuts. So once you take the time to learn those keyboard shortcuts in Omni Outliner, you can really fly through it. And you can add more information to your outline by pulling in attachments and recordings and PDFs and more. You can even record audio while you take notes with an Omni Outliner for your future reference. Once you've got all this great information in Omni Outliner, you can share out your outlines by exporting it into a variety of formats. And all of this information can sync across any Mac or iOS device using OmniPresence. It's Omni Outliner's free and reliable open source tool. So your files are always intact and available. And they'll be waiting for you because Omni uses background app refresh 
uh, so you don't have to worry about going and making sure that everything is up to date. So there are two versions. There's a basic version, and then there's the pro version that brings some additional features and export formats, including things like Apple Script support, advanced style control, and more. I'm a big fan of Omni Outliner. I've used it extensively as I've been going back to school. I'm using it right now as I write my final research paper for my program, and it has just been a godsend. So if you want to check it out, I encourage you to try it and try both versions before you buy to make sure that you're getting the one that's right for you. Uh, Omni gives a two-week free trial of their programs, and you can go and download them by visiting omnigroup.com. And if for any reason you're not satisfied, they've got a 30-day money-back guarantee on all of their applications. And if you're a student or if you've already got a version of the Omni Group's applications, make sure you check out. They've got upgrade and educational pricing available. So go check out Omni Outliner and all of the great applications from our pals over at the Omni Group. And thanks, Omni, for your kind support of Mac Power users. Okay, so now that we have an iPad Pro in two different sizes, which is really kind of confusing, I went to the Apple Store the other day and just for giggles, I said, so you got the new iPad Pro, you know, just to see what the guy did. And he said, yeah. And he showed me the 13-inch one. Oh, by the way, for me, they're 13 and 10. It's really hard for me to think of them as 9.7 and 12.9. I can't remember the point figure correctly ever. Yeah. But, but and I said, no, the other the other new one. He's like, oh, yeah, we haven't really figured out how to, how to, how to distinguish when someone asks. Uh, but but that is a question. Katie didn't like the twelve point nine, and uh, and ended up you're getting now you're going to get a nine point seven. Hopefully that one works for you. Yep, I've ordered the nine point seven. In fact, the case for it has already arrived. So I've I've just ordered a very inexpensive kind of knockoff smart cover um, or smart mm-hmm. case from from Amazon, and it was like seven bucks. And it's basically my case to tide me over until I find the case that I really like. But I've been holding that case in my hand, you know, trying to get a an idea of the size. And, oh, you know, this isn't so bad. And I'll tell you, when I when I opened the box with the case in it, I, I was it was just like it was like, OK, yes, this is this is doable. This is this will be OK. Whereas my immediate impression when that happened with the 12.9 inch one was like, oh, no, 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 no. So Yeah. Well, is that is that really the nexus of this whole thing? When someone asks you, do you just say. Can you stand the big screen or not? I I suppose perhaps yes. I mean, I, I think the, the other thing, the, the elephant in the room with the twelve point nine inch iPad is is the cost of it. You yeah, know, it, it is for me as much as for anybody else. Like that was one of the other reasons why I had to replace the Mac was because I could not afford to have two thousand pound computers sitting on my desk. Yeah, um, and by thousand pound, you're talking yeah. uh, British, not. Um, <laughs> yeah, not weight. <laughs> yeah, no kilograms. Yeah, um, but that that was part of the reason. That if I wanted to go up to the the iPad Pro, I actually had to sort of justify that by selling my my MacBook Pro. Now I, I did it a, a number of months later, but I still had to kind of recoup that cost in in some way. Yeah. So um, I think that is also going to be a limiting factor in people's adoption of the twelve point nine is just the sheer cost of a one hundred twenty eight gig plus device. Um, but I think. There's there are certainly a class of people for whom the size of the the full size iPad Pro is kind of intimidating. Um, it's also quite heavy, and this is something that I, I notice when I'm teaching. That I'm standing in front of the class, I'm holding this iPad, and what I'm I'm doing the kind of um, tablet PC hold, which is you know it's a sort of cradle across your forearm and then right on it that way. Um, I'm doing that much more. Uh, that certainly never was never necessary with with a nine point seven inch iPad. Um, so I think uh, size, but also cost and weight are factors that might limit people's adoption of the larger of the iPad Pros. 
Um, so it, bef- it, if you if your big iPad, your 12.9, got run mm-hmm. over by a truck today, which one would you buy? I, I would go and get another one straight away. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. And for me, it's two things, right? One is, one is um, having two side-by-side iPad screens, uh, iPad user interfaces, getting the full interface on both sides of that is, is very important to me because I do so much of that kind of multitasking work like I described before. But also having the extended software keyboard is for me a game changer because I mostly type on the screen. I I do use a Bluetooth keyboard occasionally when I'm sitting at my desk at home. But for the most part, and certainly all during my school day, I will type on the iPad screen. And having the number keys there and the punctuation keys just out on the front keyboard, it has really changed how how quickly I can I can produce text on the iPad. So those two features alone are really important to me. Um, and also just using the Apple Pencil, having the physical space on the screen to write on, uh, I, imagining that just made physically smaller. I, I don't write very neatly or very small, and uh, I find having the, the full-size iPad Pro is, is really helpful to just give me more space to get that writing done. One yeah. of the things that I found is that, uh, although it, it certainly was usable, I found that using the 12.9-inch iPad uh, was a much more intentional thing. You know, if it something that was better used at a table or, um, you know, standing at a countertop, I found that, you know, if you were going to use it while you were just lounging around on a on a chair or in the sofa or, or wherever, um, that it was a little more cumbersome, obviously, because of its size. That's not to say that you couldn't do it, but I didn't find the, the larger iPad Pro to be as comfortable to use um, in those types of settings. I, I think it's, it, it is more akin to be used at a desk or on a desktop. I think that there's an, an element of play in there as to what size iPhone you have as well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. That's probably true. Because I, I have a iPhone 6 Plus, and what I find is that a lot of those kind of casual lounging around situations where I would previously have reached for an iPad, I'm actually reaching for my phone in those situations now much more often. And I'm quite happy to, you know, watch Netflix on my phone or play games on my phone or even, you know, read Kindle books on my phone. Whereas in the iPhone 5 era and earlier, that, that those would have been things that I would have upgraded to my iPad very quickly to try and do those tasks. So I, I I find that plays off a little differently from time to time. One place I really don't like the iPad Pro is using it in bed to watch TV. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just too big for that space, you know. You know, um, so there yeah. are ways and means around that, but it's not great. Um, I, 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 I had to get on an airplane as well. I had to get on an airplane, and the guy I, I some I have some curse. I don't know what it is. Where um, I am only allowed to sit on airplanes between the window and a guy that's 400 pounds. It's, I don't know what it is. It's called flying in America, David, I think. Yeah. And every time Americans are getting bigger and seats are getting smaller and it's, so I, I was using the iPad pro on a flight. It was a long flight. And I I think I could have wedged it between the guy and the wall. And I was thinking, boy, if I had a little smaller iPad, this would not be as uncomfortable, but, but, but laying it down on the, the tray with no keyboard and being able to type on it is really nice. So, mm-hmm. so long as I'm seated next to someone that's not, you know, uh, encroaching on my real estate, the big one actually works pretty well on an airplane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there's, there's an interesting thing starting to get talked about on Twitter about having two iPads rather than having like a, you know, a computer and an iPad, you know, you have your 12.9 inch iPad and maybe having an iPad mini as well. I'm curious about that. I'm not saying I'm going to do it myself, but uh, I've heard a couple of people mention that, and I, I'm curious to see where that goes. 
but we've, we've got an old mini in the house that I've been, I set up, you know, because my daughter's not using it. And Mm -hmm. I haven't really used it that much, to be honest with you. I just keep going to the iPad pro, but I've got a mini available. So we'll see. But, um, I, I I do think to me, I I think you're right. The, the, you know, the two big questions are, do you want to spend more? And if you do want to spend more, even is that size something you want? Like for Katie, I don't think it was really the money was the issue so much as it was just too awkward for you, the size. Absolutely. Now, we've had a lot of people talk, you know, write us recently because as as we're recording this, the 9.7 inch Pro has not yet come out yet. Um, but a lot of people talk to us about, well, do if I know 9.7 is the size for me, do I go with the 9.7 inch Pro or do I go with the iPad Air 2? Because they've also announced a price drop for the iPad Air 2, um, which mm-hmm. now makes that a much more appealing device. Um, certainly there's some, there's some advantages to having the pro. There's some things that you get with the pro that you don't get with the iPad air Two. obviously support for the keyboard support for the pencil. Um, you get the extra, um, some of the, a lot of the extra features, but the iPad two is no slouch either. And I know that this is something that your people are debating on an individual level for their own personal decisions, but you're debating on a much larger scale, uh, because you're coming up with your own purchasing decision for your school soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, this summer we have to make a decision as to what our device is going to be for the next three years. So we're we're talking about a device that's going to be in use in the year 2019, just to make make you feel a sense of foreboding about the upcoming end of your life. Um, <laughs> well, it further, worked. Thank you. <laughs> the further I think about <laughs> that, the more I'm concerned about it myself. Um, so we're looking at a device that will be in use 2016, 17, 18, and 19, and. Basically, the offer that we have at the moment is there's an iPad Air 2 at 64 gigabytes, which is £429 in the UK, and the 32 gigabyte iPad Pro at the same size for £499. So you're talking about a £70 difference um, to go to the Pro from the Air 2. Times and 120 students. Yeah. Times 120. So you're, you're talking about the best part of £10,000 difference to to buy into owning the ipad pro now one of the things about the ipad pro is that two of its major benefits and this is particularly true of the 9.7 pro rather than the 12 inch pro um two of its major differentiating factors between that and the ipad air 2 require you to buy something else to realize those benefits yeah so the smart keyboard connector and the apple pencil support you've got to buy a smart keyboard and you've got to buy an apple pencil in order to get those benefits, right? If you take the view that I take for school, which is we're probably not going to spend the money on either of those things right now, then the iPad Pro doesn't look like as big a benefit as you might think. So what you get the same amount of RAM, two gigabytes of RAM in both devices. You've got an A8 chip versus an A9 chip. That's not an insignificant difference because the A9 chip is very fast. Yeah, and you're going to be using it in 2019. Yeah. Exactly. However, the A8 processor is three cores, whereas the A9 processor is two cores. So you've got a multitasking thing going on there as well, where it's um, the Air 2 is not as poor in multitasking tests. Uh, the difference is not as great as it is in single, ta- in single core tests, because the individual cores of the A9 are faster, but there's more of them in the Air 2. So that's a tricky little trade-off as well. You get the true tone display, you got the flash on the back camera, and you've got the better cameras. And basically, if you're not going to buy an Apple Pencil, then that plus CPU performance is what you're buying for seventy pounds. Is that Hello. a good deal for everybody in school? 
I'm not absolutely sure about that. I, although I would think that I think the pencils are going to get cheaper. I think you know if you're going to look at keeping it four years, um, you may end up yeah. wanting a pencil at some point. And you know, let's say that the Apple pencil went down to forty pounds. It's seventy nine pounds in the UK right now. If it went down to forty pounds, would we buy a class set of them? Absolutely. Yeah. But if we don't buy the iPad Pro this year, we're locking ourselves out of that possibility until 2019, 2020 school year. My, mm. Yeah, it's Gosh, tough. and then you think about what's the iPad going to be then? It's never been harder, actually. This is the hardest decision I've had to make in a long time. I, uh, but what what I do believe, though, is that whichever one we choose, it will be fine. Yeah. You I, know, it's not like you're choosing between an iPad Mini 2, which is a, just a bad decision, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Is that still so, for sale? I think that's still for sale. Um yeah, I think you can still get the mini too, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the um I, I do think that um number one, you can't make a, a bad decision. Those are two great devices. But mm-hmm. for for individuals that have been kind of riding in, I've been telling them generally, uh, you know, if you can stomach the extra cost, I think you should get the pro because you know, the iPad Air two, it, it was ahead of its time a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. but it's still a year and a half old and the a8 if you're going to keep it for several years which most people tend to keep ipads for three or four years yeah i think giving yourself an extra year of processor may give you another year on the back end and um and and, and the option of the pencil for an individual user i i mm-hmm. to me the pencil's mm-hmm. killer I, the, the story about the pencil that hasn't been told enough and i think we should have probably asked you more about this in today's show is uh, it's not just for making beautiful artwork. I mean, I'm using it to review contracts and do things, you know, just I, I'm not using it for the stuff that's in the commercials. And yeah, I, no, I, I go ahead. I, I mostly use it in PDF expert. You yeah. see, um, I use it in iTunes U as well. Although the, the pencil implementation in iTunes U leaves a lot to be desired. It's, it's probably the worst uh, implementation of pencil support in any app I've ever used in iOS, which is kind of embarrassing for Apple. Um, and that that really needs to be fixed quite soon. But you're you're absolutely right. I, I use it not just for marking student work, but I also use um, Notability. I don't know if you're familiar with that app. Yeah, great um, app. Notability is a great app, and I use that with my Apple TV in the classroom, and that's my whiteboard. I don't, yeah. I don't use the pen board anymore. It's just Apple Pencil on the iPad being mirrored up to my Apple TV on the screen behind me. And that's that's how I teach now. Well, as I listen to you talk, I'm I'm thinking that you should be getting the pros. But see, I, I'm a bad influence. Yeah. Well, if I could, let's say there was some kind of education program where, if a school bought iPad Pros, they got a free pencil for every student. Let's imagine there's a fantasy world where Apple gives away that kind of money. Well, I, I know I, we have people at Apple listening to our show, so uh, whoever's in Cupertino right now, please make that happen for free. Okay, you guys, I'm counting on you for that. Um, but if you could imagine that was possible, right, if, or if there was some education package where you could get the iPad Pro and the Apple Pencil for the same price as the iPad Pro at retail or however that works, I don't know, that would be a no-brainer, right? If I could have an Apple Pencil for everybody without spending seven grand on Apple Pencils, yeah. then you know, done deal, right? The pro, no question. If you, if you can get the pencil support, but the, the, the truth is, you know, we're, we're looking at just spending seven, 8,000 pounds just to buy into the possibility of having Apple pencil support. And then we've got to go and buy the pencils after that. Yeah, no. Um, and we're not buying one for everybody. Yeah. And even if we do get that magic deal from Apple, I'm putting most of them in a cupboard and I'm handing them out on a very selective basis. <laughs> yeah. I bet. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Or even would you need, 
everybody to have a pencil? I mean, that's another question. I mean, is that something where you well, have one-to-one iPads, but you do really need one-to-one pencils? Maybe not. Well, 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 the thing, the nice thing about the pencil is that you can repair it with a different iPad just by plugging it in. So, you know, you could have 10 pencils in, you know, the advanced higher art classroom and kids could just take one, plug it into their iPad and that would be it set up to use it with that iPad for that session. Yeah. And then they just put it back and somebody else can use it the next time. It's not, there's not a complex process of pairing and unpairing like you would do with, say, a Bluetooth keyboard or something. So it's beautifully designed to be shared between different iPads. It's, it's one of the nicest things I've ever seen. Um, and I thought about it quite a lot and it seems to me very practicable to do something like that in school where you could have a, a class set of Apple Pencil, if you like, um, uh, to be shared among students. And that would, that would probably be how I would do that um, if I was going to bring Apple Pencil to the school is, is to bring some into art perhaps and then also maths would be the two places where I, I would bring that in first and I would use it. I would, the pencils would stay in the classroom but the kids would come bring in with their iPad Pro and, and get to use it for the session. Well, Fraser, we've gone as uh, we've gone a little while, so we're going to finish up here pretty soon. But the, as someone who's gone all in with iPad, uh, give us a couple apps that people may not have heard of that they should be checking out for their iPads. Oh, good question. Well, I mentioned Notability. If you have an iPad Pro, that is that is a super app to use. Um, if you're into audio recording or podcasting, uh, this app called Ferrite Recording Studio, which I'm using to record this show, is a game changer for podcasting on iOS. Yes, there's things we would like to be different in iOS for podcasting. There are some, you know, the fact that I'm wearing both iPhone headphones and my podcasting headphones right now tells you that there are some things that need to get done there. But that's great. Um, it, looking at Office for iOS, um, they recently changed the licensing scheme for Office so that you only need to have a, a working 365 subscription if you want to run it on a 12.9-inch iPad Pro. Um the if you have a normal sized iPad or a mini, you get to basically use those apps for free, which is perhaps the most Microsofty way of licensing iOS software <laughs> I've ever seen. But Microsoft <laughs> going to Microsoft. Do you hear that, um, Katie? You're in. I see that. Actually, you know, I just yeah. recently bought a 365 subscription. They offer were offering a deal to us uh, graduating students. I think they're trying to get us, you mm-hmm. know, get us before we leave type thing. So I yeah, I did it. Oh, they're, they're they're throwing that software at schools as well. I mean, we're paying like one pound twenty five per teacher per month to have that software. Yeah, it's um, and we don't even need to pay that anymore, as far as I can see. Yeah, yeah it's actually free. They have it. Microsoft has a deal mm-hmm. with my school, so it's free as long as you're a student. And they just send out an email, and be like, "Hey, wouldn't you like to have this when you're no longer a student? We've got a deal for you." First time is always free. Yep. So those are some great apps. Um, there's tons of other things, nerdy things like workflow. Pythonista, those are apps that I teach with um, in school. Um, iTunes U, if you're a teacher, iTunes U is an app that I love. I use that every day in school. Um, so many great apps, so many great apps. Um, uh, but PDF Expert for me sort of epitomizes the iPad lifestyle in that that is an app that is actually better than any comparable app on any other platform that I have ever seen. It's better than Acrobat on the Mac. It's better than Preview on the Mac. It's yeah. better than any other PDF editor um, on the um, on iOS that I have used before. Um, and it's it just the power of this there. It, it's crazy. And and uh, those are the kind of apps that I would point to. Office, iWork as well. I mean, Keynote is, is super on iOS too. There's yeah. just such power there. It is great when you find something that is actually just better on a touchscreen and then you find a software developer that knows how to really leverage that. It's, it's really great. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us. We do want people to take advantage of uh, Canvas, which is a great podcast over on Relay FM. You've uh, up to six episodes now, probably is the time that I, we released. I this. just recorded episode seven about an hour ago. So oh, okay, so we'll seven have that soon too. Seven yep. may be out as well. So uh, definitely want to have people tune in for that. And then what's a what's a good way for people to find you other than over on the the Relay Network? Okay, so I'm uh, Spears.org is my blog, and I'm Freezer Spears on Twitter. So those are the places to find me. Great. And we'll have links to all of that in the show notes as well. Uh, we do want to thank our sponsors for this episode, Smile, Omni, uh, Market Circle, and Squarespace. And of course, all of you who have become members of the Relay Network and are supporting us directly. Thank you for your contributions. Uh, you can also, we've got our, our live show is coming up, so you can send feedback to the show. Uh, by emailing us at feedback at MacPowerUsers.com if you want to submit comments that way. And we will see you all next week.